big God. Cool. Well, my name is Travis. I serve as the pastor of preaching and theology here at Mission. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out that giant screen behind me. All the scriptures and quotes and stuff like that will be up there. Also, if you do not own a Bible, please hear me clearly. We want you to have one. Here at Mission Church, we lead, preach, sing, and meditate upon the scriptures. And so as you leave today, feel free to swing by that table. We have free paperback Bibles. Take one of those also as our gift to you. Now this morning, we're going to continue on our teaching series through the book of Psalms, and we've entitled this series An Exile's Prayer Book. The reason for that is because the Psalms are not so much a song book as they are a prayer book. These are the prayers that the Israelites would pray as they were in the exile. And what they are for us is prayers that we pray as we await the second coming of Jesus. And today, the Psalter, King David, is going to encourage us to trust in God with confidence as we enter into a tight spot. To trust in God as the situations and the problems that we face in this life squeeze in on us, that we can go to God in confidence and we can trust in Him in the midst of that. And so if you got a Bible, look with me in Psalm chapter 4, and as you're looking there, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer, and my hope is in you all day long. And so, Father, I just pray right now that your word, that it will go forth and rest on hearts as you see fit. I do not know the situations that people are facing in this room, but God, you see the unseen. So we ask you to give faith where faith needs to be given. Strengthen faith, convict faith. God, work in and through us. We put ourselves humbly before your word, asking you to speak. God, we love you, and we thank you that you are a God who hears and that you are a God who is with us in the midst of the trial and the trouble. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a tight spot, literally or figuratively? You know, one of those situations that is squeezing in on you and constricting you. I know I have. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here who has been on a plane stuck in the middle seat between two guys that are fairly large and they're asleep. Anybody with me? I can remember several years ago having to go to the bathroom as I stepped on the plane. I was dehydrated, so I flooded my system with water, thought, hey, I could just go to the bathroom when I sit down. Yet as I sat down and the plane went up to whatever feet that you're able to move around the cabin, all of a sudden the two men next to me just passed out. And for the entire time, I'm sitting there just having to go, praying, God, wake one of them up. Let's just figure this out. Eventually, one of those guys woke up. I stood up to leave and like to go to the bathroom. And this is what I heard. Ladies and gentlemen, we have started our descent. Please make sure your seat back and your tray tables are in their full upright and locked position. Make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened and your carry-on luggage is stowed under the seat in front of you or in the overhead bins. Thank you. As that came over the speaker, I was standing up to go to the bathroom. The stewardess or the flight attendant looked at me and said, you have to sit down. I said, ma'am, I am so sorry, but I drink a ton of water. I've had to go this entire flight. If I sit down, you got a mess to clean up. And she looked at me and she's like, yeah, I don't want to clean that up. Go quickly. Anybody been in that situation? It's a tight spot, isn't it? You're constricted. You're squeezed. You're like, I got to get out of here. Many of us have been on a highway late to a meeting. All of a sudden, to see that high, highway slow down and you're in gridlock traffic hemmed in, constricted on all sides with cars. You see this lane start to move, and you put your car in that lane, think you're going to get away, but as soon as you go into this lane, what happens to it? It stops, and the one you were in starts to go, and it gets really frustrating. And many of us know what it's like to be constricted and, and basically squeezed in upon when it comes to our finances. I'm sure I'm not the only one whose finances were low, and rent or a bill was due. 
You see, many of us, we can relate to these situations. We know what it's like to be in a tight spot. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who does not like to be constricted and squeezed. Yet the question is this, what do you do in that tight spot? What do you do when it just starts to get tight around you? When you feel hemmed in and you're trapped? What do these situations squeeze out of you? What emotions, feelings, or actions begin to surface? You see, if you squeeze an orange or a lime or a lemon, what comes out? Orange, lemon, or lime juice. And as you are squeezed as a follower of Jesus Christ by the trouble and the tribulation that comes in this world, what comes out of you? In Psalm chapter 3, we saw that David was in a tight spot. And as evening comes, we go into chapter 4, and David is still in that tight spot. He's been in this situation all day long, and it's squeezing in on him. And what comes out of him? Well, for that, we look at Psalm chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Here's what we read. For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Last week, if you were with us, you saw in Psalm chapter 3 that David's son, Absalom, basically started an insurrection. He was handsome. He was strong. He was persuasive. And what he did is he led thousands and thousands of Israelite people away from David in order to take his kingdom and take the kingdom of God away from him. Think of a boa constrictor, an anaconda that just kind of squeezes in on its prey. That is how David feels. They're getting close. They're getting tight. He feels like hope is leaving him and that it's gone. And as evening approaches, David finds himself in the same situation. And like you and like me, what does he do? He prays in the evening. But notice what he prays as these armies are squeezing in on him. Does David lose hope in God? Absolutely not. He pledges his dependence upon God. He declares it upon God, and he cries out to God for help. And notice what David is doing in this text. He is remembering, he's rehearsing, and he's rejoicing in God's character and past faithfulness and deliverance in his life. And when you and I find ourselves in the tough situation with the the situation squeezing in upon us, we too are called to remember, to rehearse, and to rejoice in God's character and what he has done in the past to bring us through. You see, David says that God is the one who what? Vindicates him. You see, this word in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word siddike. It literally means righteousness. And what you have to understand is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're praying up to God, God is not fickle or indifferent towards you. He doesn't ignore you, but he hears you. How do we know that? Because David said that God is righteous and he always does right by his people. Think of a father that their children come up to him when they're going through a painful situation. My kids have done that in my life. When they were little, they would come up to me and they would say, Daddy, help. And they'd come up to me unashamedly because they know that I'm their father and I want good in their life and I'm there to help them. And in the same way, David cries out to his father, God, and he says, God, help me. But then he does something else. He says, you have freed me from affliction. Notice that's in the past tense. And the idea behind this word is that God created space, made room. They're squeezing in, and he pushed them back. You see, as David is literally in this situation, with this insurrection taking place and these armies about to overthrow him, he remembers and he rehearses and he rejoices in God's past faithfulness. He remembers his time in his life when King Saul was coming after him to kill him. He remembers that story that many of us know about David and Goliath, 
He probably remembers and recalls the story of the lion who was trying to take him out. And he remembers that God loosened their grip and he delivered him through it. My kids, I love them to death. But when it comes to the remote, it can be like World War III in my home, okay? And there have been times in my life in which one of my daughters will scream out and they will scream out. And I asked my son for permission to use this and he said, that's fine. They will scream out, Caleb took the remote. Now, what is they screaming out for? For dad to come in and solve it. And it is not uncommon for me to go into the living room and my son and I to get into a wrestling match in which I pin him down and I pry his fingers one by one off the remote to you know, make it free to give it back to my daughters. That is what David is saying God has done for him. This isn't his first rodeo. It's not the first time he's been in a situation like this. And in the past, God has come through loosening the grip and setting him free. And perhaps right now you find yourself in a tight spot. Maybe it's relational, financial, or physical. What could you or what should you do? I would encourage you to jog your memory. Think of those moments in the past in which God was at work. Remember those moments, rehearse those moments, and rejoice in those moments. I oftentimes tell the story when my wife and I moved here in 2002. We were so excited. We knew God was calling us to leave Louisville, Kentucky to come to this city. And so we had planned a vacation before we ever stepped foot here to live with some friends. And we knew on the last day of that vacation, we needed to find an apartment. Now, we scrambled around. We were praying. We went into apartment after apartment after apartment, and they kept telling me the same answer. We can't give you an apartment. You don't make enough. And I can remember when it seemed like all hope was gone, we stumbled into the very last apartment at Tanea and Washington. We sat down. I looked at the lady, and I said to her, ma'am, and she said, don't call me ma'am. And I said, well, I'm sorry, ma'am. And then I said, I said, I need you to understand something. Yeah, I know it doesn't look right on paper, but you can trust me. I've never missed a payment in my life, and I'm not about to miss it now. You will never have to wonder if we are going to be able to pay. I don't know why. It didn't make sense. But she signed the pa- or slid the paper over, and we signed it, and we got an apartment. And I can remember when I was going to college, I knew God was calling me to be a pastor. And I went up to Cincinnati Bible College and Seminary because at that point in my life, I thought that's where every pastor in the world went. I didn't know I had options. And I remember sitting down with this financial advisor with my mother, looking at the spreadsheet of how we were going to pay for this. And we just looked at it and go, we don't have it. We can't do this. Well, that financial advisor, and I don't know why he did this, he basically said, well, let me see if I can work something out. And he basically put me on a payment plan that was more like a promissory note like IOUs, right? That's just as good as money. And every single semester, I would find myself in the financial aid office, and they're going, how in the world did you get this? And that guy who was the financial aid officer, he was now in facilities, okay? But God made a way. And I'll never forget Mike. Mike was a guy in my life who taught me so much about Jesus. Every single Sunday, he would sit right next to me in church, both in the adult service and the youth service. And there was one day in which Mike did not show up. My dad came over, tapped me on the shoulder. He said, we got to go to the hospital. There's been an accident. I remember walking into that hospital and seeing big Mike with his head in his hands. He was a linebacker for Northwestern. I mean, the dude could look at me and just snap me, right? He had two Rottweilers. He'd go chop, 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 and they'd do figure eights between. I mean, he was just a dude. And he is just sitting there with his head in his hands, weeping. And my dad walks up to him and said, Mike, how are you holding up? And I will never forget the four words. 
Jesus is sustaining me. You see, in the midst of the tight situation, the grip of death is on his life and it's squeezing in. Jesus made room in his heart. And by God's grace, his wife recovered. But then there's Jane. She was one of my volunteers in my first ministry, a dear friend to my wife and I. I took her to California to a conference. And while we were there, we had to come back early because she got sick. And when we came back home, she quickly discovered that she was diagnosed with cancer. And it wasn't going well. She knew she was going to die. And one day while we were on that church campus, I remember seeing her in a wheelchair. Jane was strong. She would set up and tear down the children's room basically by herself. But cancer had ravaged her body. And now here she is in a wheelchair. She said, Travis, come here. I kneeled down next to her and she said, I want you to do my funeral. But I do not want you to cry. And I was like, what? She goes, death has taken away its sting. I know when I close my eyes, I'm going to see Jesus. And when I did her funeral, I didn't cry. I cried afterwards. (laughs) But I'll always remember how God created space in Jane's heart. You see, how do I know these stories so well? It's because when the trouble and the trial is squeezing in on me, I remember them. I rehearse them. And I rejoice in God's character and goodness in all of them. These are like reminder stones in my life that when the dark night of the soul comes, I know he is good. And I remember his past faithfulness. And the question I have for you is the bottom falling out for you. Are you in that right now? Then remember who God is, his character and what he's done. And if you are a follower of Christ, hear me clearly, you do not have to come to God passively or sheepishly. You come to him with boldness and you come to him with confidence. Think about what David is doing here. He is literally commanding God to hear him. When you look at this in the Hebrew text, these are imperatives. He's not asking. He is demanding an audience with God. He's saying, be gracious to me, Father. Hear me. Hear my prayer. I know I belong to you. I know you've shown up in the past, and I need you to show up now. You see, he is not passive. He is not sheepish. He's coming to God in confidence because he knows who God is. So far throughout these Psalms, we see that David has been talking to God. But now he's going to make a pivot, and he's going to start to talk to people. And it's important for us to see that you and I are to talk to God before we talk to people. So what are these people doing? Look at verse 2. He says, How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie, say lie? You see, David asked those who are attacking him two questions. First, these people are squeezing in on him. They're causing him grief and heartache. They basically started a smear campaign of fake news to try to discredit him. And they are also mocking the God he believes in. How so? Well, you might remember from last week if you were here. What did David say? That God is his glory. Look back with me in Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. Listen to what this says. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, a defensive tool, right? Blocking the enemy's throws at every angle. But he also says, my glory and the one who lifts my head. The word here for honor in chapter 4 is the very same word for glory in chapter 3. And what you and I glory in is what we are known for. It's what we take pride in. And David's hope and glory wasn't in himself. It wasn't in his possessions and it wasn't in his accomplishments. Rather, his glory was in God and who God says he is. Why is that? It's because we saw last week, David failed. He failed as a father. He failed as a king. 
He's an adulterer and a murderer. God forgave him, but he is still dealing with the earthly consequences of his sin. And at this point in his life, he is on the run. And he has no glory in his possessions because other people have his possessions at this point. He has no glory in his accomplishments because he's about to be dethroned as king. And he has no glory in himself because he has failed. You see, David had no glory in any of these things. That's why he says his glory is in who? God and God alone. God is the only one who gives him an identity. God is the only one who can rescue him. And when he says, he basically looks at him, he says, when my honor is insulted, is essentially asking these people, how long will you mock God? Do you not remember? I may not look like a whole bunch right now. Yeah, I look worthless. I don't have my, my crown on. But do you not remember that God had promised to put a king on my throne for eternity? And notice that these people don't have to be conjoled or forced or persuaded to worship that which is worthless because the text tells us that they what? They love it. What does this look like? Well, you might remember from week one in Psalm chapter two, the first three verses, here's what we read. This is what this looks like to live at war or mock God. Listen to what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and the anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. You see, what are those who are insulting David's glory and honor and who are loving worthless things and pursuing lies? What are they doing? They are mocking the anointed one. They are mocking the Lord God and his anointed one. And who is that? Say it, say it with more confidence. Who is that? Jesus. Okay, you win. Everybody gets an A, man. You just keep saying, like, this is an open book test, right? Like, you got it in front of you. Like, like Jesus, right? They're persecuting God, mocking God, and Jesus. And they're not just mocking him. They're trying to overthrow him. They're trying to dethrone him. These are creatures trying to become creators and essentially trying to live autonomous lives. How do we know this? Because what does the text say? That God's rule in their life feels like chains, feels like ropes. They want to throw off, break those chains. They want to throw off those ropes. And when you think of chains and ropes, what does that remind you of? Prison, shackles. They look at God not as somebody to worship and adore and honor. They see God as nothing more than a cosmic killjoy. And one of the most disheartening things I've ever heard was when I was an elementary pastor. I was sitting in a group with third grade boys. And I remember asking those boys, what is freedom? And this kid, without even missing a beat, said that freedom is not listening to God or my parents. You see, for that young man, freedom was not with God. Freedom was apart from God because he saw God as nothing more than a killjoy. He saw him as ones that he needed to tear off his chains, to throw off the ropes. He would, you know, people who are in this boat, they call evil good and they mock those who love God and love others. And the question I have to ask is just simply this. Do you see God's commands as burdensome or life-giving? Do you see them as keeping your joy or robbing your joy? You see, for those of us who know God and love Jesus, we know that his commands are good. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 5, 4, this, he says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a what? Burden. Jesus says in John 14, 15, you might remember this from the first week, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He's not saying you might or you even have a choice. It's a future active indicative, which is just a, 
Simple way of saying it's certain. It's going to happen. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And it is not to look like drudgery. It's not to be a burden because we have love for God. We want to do these things. And these commands are, hear me clearly, mission, they're for our good. Right now, if you take Jones South and you try to get on the 215, you will see there is a guardrail on that on-ramp that has been completely obliterated. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, no? Well, I pay attention to it, okay? It's been completely obliterated. It has been for weeks. They haven't fixed it. I don't know why. But the person who designed that road put that guardrail for a reason. Was it to take life or to keep life? Keep life. Was it to rob joy or keep joy? Well, some people are like, well, what about my car? No, just, just go with it, okay? Like, take joy or keep joy. Keep joy to keep you alive. Could you imagine what would happen if that guardrail wasn't there? That person who obliterated it would have went flying out onto 215, causing more damage. And let me ask you a question. Has our pursuit of autonomy caused this world to be better or worse? Do we have more unity and love and harmony or division, hatred, and pain. You see, those who, have, who love God, who see God as their glory, want to keep his commands, for they're not burdensome. They are not ropes to throw off, chains to tear away, but rather they are a life-giving stream of water to a plant in the desert that helps them stay alive. And as you and I are in exile, we cry out to God saying, God, nourish me, be with me. It's squeezing in all around me. But God, give me your nourishing life. You see, these people are wishing ill upon David, but he does not desire that for them. He actually prays for his enemies to be saved. Look at verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. David says, Do you not see? God is not done with me. I may not look like, a, like, a, like much right now. I may not look like I have it all together. But don't forget, God has got a king coming through me. And how do we know this? Because what verb does he use? Set apart. And that is significant because this verb is only used one other time in the Hebrew text, and that is Exodus. I think in chapter 8, 9, 11, and 33. And when you look at this verb in the Exodus, it's always referring to the Israelite people in which God is telling the Israelites, I'm going to set you apart from the Egyptians. When the plagues come, you are not going to be harmed. This is going to come upon the Egyptians. And it is almost as if David is cautioning those who are against him in their actions. He's basically saying, are you acting like Pharaoh? You see, what did Pharaoh do? Was he wanting to have a, you know, like a frappuccino with God? No, he was at war with God. He wanted to be God, trying to dethrone God and obliterate God's people. And David is saying, you aren't just at war with me when you come after me. You are also at war with God too. But for those of us who are set apart, for those of us who are with God, it says that God hears our prayer when we call to him. It is important for you to know that David's hope is our hope too. You see, you and I belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ the moment that we believe. That the moment you believe, you become a son or daughter of God. You are set apart for him. David was unconditionally chosen, and you are unconditionally chosen to be a son or daughter of God the moment you believe in Christ. 
And God doesn't just hear you when you have it all together. God doesn't just hear you when you've cleaned yourself up and made yourself presentable. Many of us are familiar, and you've heard me talk about this before, the the company or the organization called Cameo. Anybody? It's basically an online service in which you can pay money to celebrities and famous people, and they can wish you happy birthday, or they can like congratulate you on something. For example, for $750, you can get the famous rapper Ice Cube to sing to rap you happy birthday. For $90, you can get Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray to sing you a happy birthday. For $150, you can get the wrestler Brett the Hitman Hart to congratulate you. And what I want you to hear is you don't have to pay to get God's attention. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a son or daughter of God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, he's already paid it. All you have to do is just open up the line and just start talking. And what you have to understand is God doesn't just hear you when you're here on Sunday and when you're in house church. And God doesn't just hear you when you're crushing it at home with your relationship with your wife and your kids or crushing it in a job or in your hobbies. You see, God hears you in the highs and the lows. God hears you when you're crushing it, and he hears you when you strike out. How do I know this? Because who is the one writing the psalm? David. And did David always hit the home run? No. In Psalm 51, we talked about it last week, 19 verses of David crying out to God to forgive him. And God hears him. And here is David in a tight situation, a tight spot, And it's not his merit. It's not anything that he has done to cause this, but God hears him. You see, God doesn't hear you because you're all that in a bag of chips. (laughs) Rather, he hears you because he has chosen to hear you. Just like I said, David was chosen to be king. And if you are believing in Jesus Christ right now, Paul says in Ephesians 1, one, chapter 1, 1 through 3, that you were chosen to be a son or a daughter of of God the moment You believed in him. And just like when my kids come up to me and say, Dad, I want to talk to you. Don't push them away. God never pushes you away. He never does it. Why? Because you're his child. And because God hears him, David pleads with his enemies to stop warring against God, and he longs for him to turn to God. Look at verse 4, and we'll pick it up. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while you're on your bed and be silent, say la. David tells those who are angry and warring with him that you're warring against God. And in the words of the great philosopher Ice Cube, he's basically saying you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, okay? (laughs) Because you are heading down a wrong path. You can war against God, but it's futile, it's vain. Why? Because you cannot win. And the word here for angry could and should be translated tremble. And the question is, when is the last time you had trembled in fear? When's the last time you were shaking in your boots? Many of us have been to the Grand Canyon. When you stand next to that Grand Canyon, you don't feel that awesome, do you? But rather, as you get up to that edge, you feel that shiver in your spine, knowing if you fall off that, you're going to die. And many people I've talked to have gone bungee jumping. They don't feel a whole bunch of confidence as they jump out. Some of them start to question, is the the bungee too long? Has it been used too much? Is it going to snap? And who in this room has ever been sent to the principal's office? If you haven't, we're out of school. I can walk you there afterwards, and you can know what it feels like. That as you're taking those steps down that hallway, because I know where his office is, I've been there, you're walking down that hallway, you don't get courage, you get fear. 
And what David is sweetly doing because he loves these people is he's walking them down the hallway to the ultimate principal's office by the name of God. He says, do you not realize who you are messing with? You should be trembling. He is going to bring judgment. They should not be pursuing this in sin. You see, instead of continuing on the same path and sinning, they are to what? To reflect and ponder at night and quiet upon their beds. And I don't know about you, but doesn't the day seem to catch up with us more at night? Where our minds start racing? And what does David say? Say la, which is just a musical way of saying pause, stop, reflect, be quiet. And he's asking those who are against him to, see, to ask themselves, are you acting like an Israelite or an Egyptian? Are you loving God or are you against God? No doubt David is in a tight spot. Yet he calls out those who are sinning against him, squeezing in on him. Like a good doctor, he gives them the proper diagnosis for their situation. And there will be times in our lives in which we'll be in a tight spot because of the people around us. And the question is, will you be honest with them? Will you tell them what's going on? I mean, don't forget who these people are. These aren't foreign powers. These aren't foreign enemies. These are people that David was king over. People he loved and he served. He loves these people. He cared for them. He wants to be reconciled to them. So what does he do? He calls them out. He reminds them of who they are, who God is, and their need to repent. And when I was a youth pastor, I could not understand how a group of friends could see one of their friends doing something that was bringing great harm in their life. And no lie, oftentimes a lot of those friends wouldn't say anything because they more worried about losing the friendship than they did the friend. You understand what I just said? The most loving thing you can do sometimes is to compassionately and lovingly call somebody out. Grace and truth, right? If we're all grace, that's just sentimental, right? People just, all truth, that's just overbearing. But we need to be gracious and truthful. And what David is doing is he's saying, guys, you're warned against God. Take a time out. You're going to wreck yourself. Just slow down. Think about the situation. See, what I think David is trying to do here, he's trying to get these people to repent. And I've talked about this before, and you've heard me talk about it, that when God tells us to repent, he's not just telling us to stop doing something. But rather, he wants us to think rightly about it, turn and go the other direction. Right now, I'm teaching my son how to drive. And the other day, we were at a stoplight. He picked up a cell phone at the stoplight, and what do you think I did? Put that down. I screamed at him. He's like, oh. Now, did I do that just to call him out and to rub his mistake in his face? Absolutely not. I told him to put that down. Why? Because that could be extremely dangerous, right? And I don't want him just to stop doing it. I want him to think rightly about it, not to do it because of the harm it could bring to him and others and to his family. In the same way, when God is telling you to stop, he's basically telling you, come back home to me. Turn and come home. Repentance is a wonderful truth in the life of a Christian. And if you're not repenting daily, you've heard me say this, you might not be a Christian. Because we're always repenting and coming back home to our Father. And you need to hear me. When you turn and go back to the Father, He's not looking at you with a door open like, oh, you're late again. He wants you back. Repentance is His invitation to be back in relationship with Him. 
You see, David wants these people to turn from their error by placing their trust in him. Listen to verse five. It says, offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. What is David talking about here? Well, in the Old Testament, Moses, God through Moses, gave the Israelites a means in which they could stay in relationship with him, even though they were sinful. That each and every year, they would take a perfect unblemished lamb. The head of the household would put their hands on that lamb, and they would take it to the priest where the priest would sacrifice it. The reason the hands were placed on the lamb is because it was basically like legal imputation that this lamb is going to bear the cost of my sin. And as that lamb was sacrificed, that lamb was in a substitute, allowing those people to remain in relationship with God for another year. Yet what David tells us is that the sacrifice alone isn't enough. It's not enough for you and me to just go put our hands on some lambs and just send them up there. But rather, what is he saying? God didn't want ritual and religion. He wanted a relationship. And there appears to be some people who are offering sacrifices while holding their hearts back. You see, David says, trust in the Lord. And in order for the sacrifice to be accepted, they had to offer it in faith and trust, looking to God to forgive. But notice the one who they are to trust in. What does it say? The Lord. And what this is supposed to do is to point us back to that first week. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, where we read this, all who take refuge in him are what? Happy. Let me ask you a question. Who is the him? You, you got the answer right the first time. Who's the him in this verse? It's Jesus. That David is talking forward. He's talking to that king who would come. That all those who would look to him would be happy and filled with unending joy. You see, mission is not enough for you and I to go through the motions of religion and ritual. In tight spots, hear me clearly. If you're just going through the motions, the tight spot is going to reveal that. You can come to church and you can learn how to change your, your, your behavior, modify your behavior by being around other Christians and being in worship. You can learn to say the right thing, do the right thing, be the right thing. But if you're doing this all with a heart that is far from God, the tight spot's going to reveal that. You see, these people weren't looking to God to basically to forgive them. They were just doing an act. And what God is doing is he's looking for men and women who will love him and obey him with sincerity and joy. It is not uncommon for me to be at my office working because it's in my house right now. One of my kids will come in and talk to me and I'll say, hey, will you go fill up daddy's cup of water? And they'll go and they'll say, sure. And they'll go over and they'll fill it up. Now, I would love to say that happens all the time. But there are some times in which they say, they grab it. Why do you ask me to do this again? Why don't you ask one of the other ones? Let me ask you, which one warms my heart? <laughs> right? The first one. And how many of us, we serve and we love and we do all these things because we have to instead of doing it out of the overflow of love that God has poured into our hearts. You see, I've talked with people who are in a tight spot and they give up, they walk away, and it tends to surprise many people. Yet when I look at them further, I find they have more of a ritualistic religious relationship with God and not really a trusting relationship with God. You see, many are, are putting David in this tight spot and they're continuing to war against him. So let's finish up here, verses 6 and 8. It says, many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when the grain and the new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord. Make me live in safety. 
You see, many of these people are just repeating their taunts. They're saying that David cannot bring any good in their life. They're saying, who can do this? Who can show us anything good? And what is David's response to these, these taunts? He prays for them. He prays the ironic priestly prayer of Numbers chapter 6. It says this, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord's faith make His face shine on you. Be gracious to you. May the Lord look with, you, with favor on you and give you peace. You see, David prays, God, reveal yourself to these people. They're squeezing in on me. There's nothing I can do to change their hearts. But God, I know you and you alone can. So make your face shine upon them. Change them. Have any of you ever been in a relationship with a family member, a friend, or coworker that is so antagonistic to your faith? Squeezing in on you, ridiculing you in the office, ridiculing you in the, the shop. I mean, this happened to me through my teenage years. I was working at a body shop, and I was like the only Christian. These guys would just ridicule me. It felt like every time I went to work, it was just enemies squeezing in on me. And in those moments, you know what I would do? God, do something. Because you know I've talked to Jeremy a ton, and he's not bending. He's not coming to you. God, work. And that's what David's doing. He's in a tight spot, and he's praying for them. He says, I have more joy in my heart than my enemies do in their bountiful harvest. And their new wine, like they're glorying in their buffets. And he says, I have a buffet that does not end. Why is that? Because he knows the harvest is going to turn to famine. And grapes turn to raisins. And there is nothing more disappointing when you eat an oatmeal cookie that has raisins in it and you think it's chocolate chips. (laughs) That is truth, right? Because you know that the raisin is eventually going to come. And that's what he's saying. Your harvest is going to turn into famine. Your grapes are going to turn into raisins. Yet God is the constant joy and security in his life. You see, there is no security in 401ks, our homes, or in our weapons. And when your joy is in Jesus, you have peace. Why? Well, you know, Matt, no matter what befalls you in this life, it won't win. You see, those who know Jesus know he can make them dwell in safety and he can help them walk in peace. In the 1550s, there was this guy by the name of Nicholas Ridley, who was to be killed for his faith. He was supposed to be burned at the stake. Yet that night, his brother walked into his prison cell and said, hey, you want me to stay with you on your last night? And he refused the offer. He said he was going to bed and that he was going to sleep as soundly as, the night, as that night as he ever did before in his life. Why? Because of what Paul says in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when your understanding gives out and the tight situation is squeezing in on you, we may not necessarily always know the why behind it, what's going on, but we know what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that God doesn't love us. Why? Because Jesus conquered the grave. Think about the tight spot you and I were in, captive to Satan, sin, and death. Yet Jesus came and lived the perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose again, and ascended to heaven, and sent his Holy Spirit into you the moment that you believe. As a down payment, like, like earnest money on a house, right? Like down payment, he's good for it, that one day he's going to crack that sky or we're going to go be with him. And guess what? The tight spot will be over because we're face-to-face with Jesus. And we may not know why. Paul says, understanding gives out. I can't figure this out. But what? The peace of Christ will guard my heart. You see, tight spots are coming. It's not a matter of if, but when. And when David's in a tight spot with his son and thousands squeezing in on him, he can be confident 
He remembers and rehearses God's past faithfulness and his promise of present faithfulness. And we know that no matter what our outcome is in any tight spot, we know that Jesus has gotten us out of the one that could truly destroy us. And that is Satan, sin, and death. And if he delivered us out of that tight spot, we can trust him in any tight spot. Next time you're stuck between two people on a plane, remember the goodness of Christ. Whenever you're in that traffic, remember the goodness of Christ, that those tight spots could pale in comparison to the ultimate tight spot. You see, David prayed this prayer. He was released, but eventually David died. And I'll tell you, he had as much confidence in him the day he died as the day in which God loosened the grip. Because he knows to be, with, to be out of this world is to be with Christ, just like James do it. And the question is, do you know that? Do you have that confidence? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through Jesus. And I just pray right now, Father, that your word will rest on our hearts as you see fit. Jesus, be big in this moment. Show us more of your glory. Help us to see the goodness of who you are, to remember, recall, and rehearse and rejoice in every single situation. God, I pray for each and every person right now who feels a squeeze coming on them. They feel constricted. That in these moments, like David, Father, I pray that they look up and they look to what you've done through your son Christ to bring them back to you. That they will cry out to you and call to you. Demand an audience with you even. It's what this text is calling us to do. Jesus says it when he says, knock, knock, knock on the door. Be persistent. For you are a God who has chosen to hear us, and we praise you for that. God, be big now as we take of these elements. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.